Today's episode of the Sixers Beat is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I follow up last week's podcast with your own Weitzman, author of Tanking to the Top, by reliving some of the great process debates. What worked during the rebuild, what didn't, what was the strength of the front office, and what were their weaknesses, and how things maybe could have turned out differently. We also open up the podcast by talking about Brian Colangelo's interview with the Chicago Bulls. And with that out of the way, enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. You know, Rich, I was going to ask you where you were when you heard the news that Brian Colangelo had interviewed for the Bulls Open job, but I know where you are. You're where pretty much everybody else is, probably stuck at home. Yeah, I was uh, on my living room couch, and uh, like everybody else, that Sent a jolt through my spine when I saw that <laughs> it tweet is, notification come through. You know, I don't, I, I will say before we even get to Brian and, and like, look, I have my job. Clearly you're listening to this podcast. I have my health. My immediate, immediate family has my health. Any complaints I have are very low against the real world complaints. Way too many people are going through. I'll, I fully acknowledge that. I would love to be able to see human beings again, Rich. This is a, uh, this has been tougher than I would have expected. I think. Yeah, and that's what made the Colangelo news as silly as it sounds. I really enjoyed that because the uh, the timeline was lit up. Yes. That happened for a yes. few minutes, just people making jokes and just having these kind of re- normal reactions that you would see if that news came through when there wasn't quarantine and we weren't all cut off from each other. So that was... Uh, that was at least cool to see in a funny Sixers it Twitter was. sort of we way. Are, it, just a little bit. I guess we're about a month or two away from when, from the two-year anniversary of Burnagate. Um, I'll never forget reading. I still, to this day, I'll, I go back and I reread the um, the Ben Dietrich article. And like the first four paragraphs, I'm thinking this has to be a joke. This has to be satire. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever read. But we're right about the two-year anniversary. You expect that at some point, Brian Colangelo's name would start coming up. But I like, did, did you at any point, did you think he was going to get that job? Like, what did you think was going on when you saw that? No, I didn't think he was ever going to get that job. I think without any reporting on this, you just look at who owns the Bulls. One of the longest owners in the NBA, Jerry Reinsdorf. I know uh, his son, Michael, runs it. Who else is kind of a longtime owner in the NBA? You know, yeah. Jerry Colangelo. And, um, and who's also from Chicago. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, it it was a favor to get Brian's name back out there for uh, for basketball jobs. I think, you know, this is not going to be breaking news or anything. I would find it very unlikely that he'll ever have a lead basketball decision maker job again. But maybe this opens up something. For him, kind of a lower level job, whether that's like director of scouting, I don't know, assistant GM. I, I have no idea. And I have no idea if he could even get those. But to me, that's what this felt like. And I'm sure if that news gets announced, there will be a big party on Twitter again. Yeah. I mean, if, if he's ever going to get back to the, even that point that you're talking about, but certainly back to a GM point, like he's got to, his name has to be normalized and he has to be. You know, you have to read him in a report like this and not have the reaction that everybody on Twitter had. And in order to do that, you have to float him out there a couple times. I agree with you. I didn't ever really think he was going to get hired, but it was a uh, it was a shock. Um, but yeah, it, it did it did very much seem like a uh, a favor. Um, but whew, boy, that was quite the, like you said exactly what I needed at that moment in time uh, to sort of get me back into this basketball Twitter frame of mind because it is easy to uh easy to get lost in the nothingness that is 
the day-to-day life at this point. It was better than any shitty cup of coffee that I've made over the past couple of weeks. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Ugh. cooking a lot more than I ever have, and I'm not a good cook. Not great. All right, so let's go back to, you know, we had Euron Weitzman on, the author of Tanking to the Top, to sort of go through his, you know, the book that he wrote and what he learned throughout the process. So this podcast is going to be a little bit of a follow-up to that with maybe some of our anecdotes and thoughts about the book and also about the 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 process uh, that we live through on a day-to-day basis for years and years and years. I guess we'll start this off pretty open-ended. I mean, real quick, what was something you learned from the book that, you know, as, as people who were very close to it, that maybe you didn't even realize? I think some of the behind-the-scenes stuff about maybe like Nerland's Noel, I did not know it was quite that extent. Um, I, I knew that he was causing trouble, but I didn't know like that he missed a plane, basically. That was something I did not know... The uh, how close Danny Ferry and came a couple times to to getting the job and the parameters of um, the second time specifically that him and Hinky were trying to work out a system and that just didn't happen. Um, I, I would say those are probably the two main things. Yeah, my one, my one was um, that they were going to switch who was going to be the managing partner with Blitzer, and if it wasn't for Blackstone, that would have came to pass. Um, that was the one that really jumped out at me just because it, 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 think of how differently the team would be. Like, I, David Blitzer has never given a press conference. He's never talked to us on the record. Um, to have him come up every two years and, and be, hey, I'm the managing partner now, uh, that would have been, that would have been interesting. Been it's, interesting. it's weird because that seems like a common setup. I know the Bucks have a rotating, or, or I'm not sure if they actually went through with it or, or there was some controversy around it, but that was a story where I think, uh, Mark Lassery and uh, Wes Edens were going to switch their uh, their managing partner titles. But yeah, never happened here. So I guess I, going back, that brings up, and recently I wrote about a Chris Stapp's Porzingis What If, uh, which touches on a lot of process information. I guess to, let's take a step back and, and really talk about some of those moments there and, and, and what happened, what was successful, what was not. Uh, we have no new information on the Sixers to talk about, so why not dive into one of the more interesting parts of the past, of really of uh, re- interesting parts of the NBA recent history, and maybe what we've learned now with a couple years between us, and what we've gained, you know, perspective now that we've seen some of it play out. What What do you think was? I, I guess we'll start off with the negative. What do you think was their their biggest mistake, and where they really lost control of this thing? Well, I think in terms of their uh, their transactions, I mean, honestly, like, if you want me to say what their biggest mistake was, their biggest mistake was bringing Jerry Colangelo on board. That was their biggest mistake. But, like, in terms of what maybe Hinky did and kind of just a, a normal NBA player transaction, the biggest mistake was picking Julia Oak for number three. No. On the one hand, I can't kill them because I thought Oak four should have been the pick there. But I think Hinky said something that you can be right for the wrong reasons and wrong for the right reasons. He said that at one point, right? I'm sure he did, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds right. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I trust you. I don't. Um, we've never had anybody talk to us, and we've asked why that pick was made and and gotten kind of the full picture there. But if you're just going through, and you did in your piece yesterday on the what if, there are a lot of explanations that theoretically would fall into that latter basket that they're wrong for the right reasons. Or, uh, sorry, they're, they're, they're right for the wrong reasons. If that would have worked out. Because, like, theoretically, like, I mean, at the time, Oak 4 was considered the safe pick. And you just saw right away he was the opposite of safe. Yeah, he was fucking terrible. He, I, I remember one Hinky talking about when he was in Houston, and I forget who these prospects were, but they drafted somebody in the in like a lottery, like mid lottery, like maybe tenth. Yeah, I remember range. this. 
And then he, he they drafted somebody a second round. And like within the first week of training camp, they went, oh shit, our second round pick is going to be a better NBA player. I think that was Chandler Parsons. Okay. I, I'm not and, sure he said that on the record, but I think that was the, uh, if you look back, that, that was who it was. Right, right. And with Jaleel for like it was within instance, it was, well, well that's not going to work out. Fuck. Like, what were we even thinking in that, that this guy, who's really an anachronism in today's NBA, like a post-up center who can't pass, is a black hole, and has no interest or ability to protect the rim. Like, that's not going to work out. And it became clear very quickly. I remember you had a tweet at one point. I think maybe you weren't covering the Sixers game. It was an ACC tournament game that year when Duke was obviously awesome and Okafor was a big part of that. You just, I think you just tweeted out, like, play some goddamn defense, Okafor. <laughs> yeah. And that's who we, we talked ourselves into. And so not only was he bad, but he also was dealing with a host of off-court issues that the Sixers as an organization were not prepared to handle. And that is mostly on them, not on him. I, I want to put that that latter part, uh, make that clear. And then you have Porzingis, who was picked, you know, one spot after him. was considered this big wild card. I remember there was a Grantland article where they ran a feature on him. And I think the lead was like, Kristaps Porzingis looks like a bust. And it was like, you know, it was like he knows that he looks like a bust and he's trying to prove that perception wrong. But he was considered this big wild card and, and literally everyone in New York was furious that they took him. Stephen A. Smith going nuts on ESPN, like this is the worst thing ever. As it turns Crying out, Knicks fan. Yeah. Yeah. As it turns out, probably the best thing they did in, I don't know, 15 years. <laughs> like he was, he was good and he was fun and he was all of that. Right away. Yep. So, yeah, I think that is the biggest mistake they made. And uh, it's still a little uncertain on, on why they did it. But as you touched on in the article, like if you just switch those two guys and that's not, you know, you, you hear a lot of draft. What ifs like, honestly, Giannis is one of those where the, the 13 or something GMs passed on him. That one's a little tougher because once you get down in the lottery, you can you can just switch some positions and say, oh, if we just drafted this guy that was playing in CYO gyms in Greece, it would have been fine and all, all that stuff, like whatever. That actually was two lottery prospects. Yep. Like they, they were considered, I think they were roughly around three and four. I think Cat was number one that year. D'Lo was considered the second guy because he was yep. a guard who – theoretically had the uh, ability to create his own shot and, and run a team. And <laughs> now those two guys are playing together and they're not going to play any defense together, but whatever. And, and then Jaleel and Chris Tapps were next. And so that that's one where I think you actually can point to, oh man, if we just had switched those two guys, everything's different. You know, you, you mentioned, do they make the Jimmy Butler and Covington moves? I think the, the obvious one the next year is, are they bad enough to still have the worst odds and draft Ben Simmons. Yep. I think the answer to that's probably yes, but it would have been a, uh, it would have been interesting. The numbers you had in your piece, <laughs> the on court, I had forgotten how bad it was. <laughs> oh my God. The on court Noel and Oak for numbers. Wow. I, I feel like we all should get t-shirts to say that we survived watching those, <laughs> so, what, 1,500 minutes or whatever? Yeah, so real quick, Okafor and Noel played 1,366 minutes together in 2015-16, had a negative 19 net rating. Just Okafor on the court without Noel had 1,759 minutes with a negative 14.3 net rating. Just Noel, 2,500 plus minutes, negative 8.6. And neither on the court, a little over 2,000 minutes, negative 8.9. So it, it sort of, do you remember those Okafor Noel debates? Oh my God. Those were every day, constant. You never changed anyone's opinion. And it was just incredible that, honestly, it was incredible how long people held out hope for Jaleel Okafor. I was surprised that we watched what we watched and there were so many people who really thought he was going to turn it around because he was dreadful. I mean, dreadful. he was, he was just lazy. Dre yes. Lazy. His recognition was poor. He was out of shape. He no way he was going to turn into a plus defensively. And those two together was just... So when you ask whether or not they can be good enough to make up that seven game... Those seven games between them at 10 and 72 and the Lakers, who are the next worst team, Porzingis alone certainly doesn't make up seven games. But not playing these two dreadful fits together 
makes up a couple more. Yeah. So I think it would have been a little bit close. The one thing I, because <laughs> this is another thing I, I completely blocked out of my memory. They were one and 30 to start the season. That's one unbelievable. And 30. <laughs> so they made an ish, mish, ish Smith trade on Christmas Eve when they were one in like 27 or something at the time. And he did, he did legitimately help them function better and, and avoid the infamy of, of the, you know, nine win or nine win season. But if, if, if Porzingis is there and capturing the NBA by storm, they probably don't make that trade. So I guess what I'm saying is it probably isn't seven games you would have had to make up. It's probably more like maybe nine games, maybe because you don't make the Ishmael trade. But yeah, it was, I mean, that, that's the biggest consideration, but one in 30, it blew my mind. I, yeah. cause at that point we weren't really like you and I weren't writing about games so much because who the fuck cares about a one in 2017 what are you going to write about they suck yeah we know we know i made ish the best number five in sixers history last week on my uh on my post where what was we the competition? Uh, wasn't very good it's i mean it's a lot of numbers like it's either an all-time great or it's you know there wasn't a lot of of middle ground there um <laughs> yeah. and he he did make them watchable and he was also the face of the team for a while because he was the person who Everybody would go to his locker after the game and got to get those quotes from Ish and uh, like a, a really good dude, too. Um, and he certainly made them, like you said, more watchable and a much better team, even if, you know, we're talking about winning nine games over a span of four months or whatever. It was. But, <laughs> yeah. but it re- he really did. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I think you look at that, you look at the front office, that could be completely different. As well, that's kind of the more important thing. Does uh, does this you know the the process hinky front office? Do they get more of a chance if they're not if uh you know the highlights are Porzingis playing really well and dunking and making all these threes instead of Okafor punching guys on the street in Boston? Maybe it seems like that certainly could have been a. A tipping point, and uh, it is, and, and like I, I you guys sort of got to go back to that time frame, like all of the moves they had made. Joel Embiid hadn't played a game. Dario Sharge was still overseas, never coming over at that point, just never coming over. They traded Michael Carter Williams, one of their high draft picks, in a move that was wildly unpopular for reasons I still don't get. So they really didn't, and and some of the other trades, you know, they um the Stauskas trade, the pick swap trade. Hadn't, hadn't materialized in any way yet. So a lot of the moves they had made, even the ones that would eventually work out, and all the ones I listed right there did eventually work out, they hadn't worked out on the basketball court yet at all. So they really needed that pick. That that one pick who was going to play at the time, who's the only top three pick at that point who was playing basketball games. They needed him to come in there and, and be something you could believe in in order to sort of like sway the public opinion, which is starting to turn against the rebuild. And for Okafor to be on TMZ instead of on SportsCenter, like, yeah, I think I think Porzingis changes that narrative quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah. I think uh, that moment when Jerry Colangelo walked through the door, by the way. Yeah. I'll yep. always remember that. We were sitting I, in. I, I, thought, I thought we were going to get a hanky press conference about uh, Julio Okafor. Like, I thought he was going to address all the stuff that was going on with Okafor, which he had up to that point avoided doing um but in walk jerry yeah and what is that room called it's it's a weird press conference room it's the same one that they had the brian press conference a couple months later it's like the legends club or something like that yeah but i remember we were all sitting there you know thinking it was it was something about hinky and okafor and i remember it was like gonzo was there um there was a few others we were just talking like yeah, I wonder what this is. And then, you know, to the right of us, they they kept it under wraps too. I'm sure they probably yes. told Woj or somebody maybe to tweet about it after the fact or something like that. But or may, maybe they didn't even do that. I don't even know. But like before he walked in, nobody knew Jerry Colangelo was going to be there. And it was like a game show. And behind door number three, <laughs> Jer- Jerry Colangelo walks in, and he's, I think he was the third person. I just remember thinking like, holy shit. Like that is, well, things are going to be different now. Yeah. And I, going back, like in terms of, of basketball decisions, I certainly think that uh, the, the Okafor selection was the biggest mistake that they made. Um, like you said, you get, it's really easy to play what if 
in the draft. Like, think think about NBA GMs, people who get paid to do this, thought Alex Len and Kelly Olenek, by the way, a pretty good GM made that decision. Trey Burke, Ben McLemore, like these kind of guys, they picked over Giannis. The MVP of the league, probably a two-time MVP of the league, whenever the season does finally finish. They thought they were better building blocks than Giannis. Like it is, and look, Giannis was the edge case of all edge cases. I remember at Draft Express, we got some video on him. And like you said, YMCA gyms in Greece, it's basically what we're talking about. Like the second division Greek, Greek league. And I think before that, he was in third division the season before. Like he was, I, I mean, you, you, you might never see another rise like you saw Giannis make. But like you said, Porzingis, I mean, a lot of people had him top five. I remember Chad Ford saying he might end up being the best player in the draft. I, I at one point in January, I think had him third. And I don't think I ever dropped him below fifth. Like he was always in that three through five range. And it's one you can really question. I remember writing about it and really, really questioning whether they should go. Like I remember thinking to myself, okay, look, I think Porzingis has as much, if not more upside than Okafor. He's clearly a better fit along Noel and eventually Embiid. But I can't quite put him ahead of it. And why can't I? And I debate that question a lot because I should have. Like I go back and I reread my Okafor scouting report. None of his weaknesses were unknown at that time. But that was a, a real, like, that was a question, a legitimate question at the time that has now become very obvious. I think a lot of people want to theorize why they couldn't select him. And there's been some reporting, you know, and I think, was it Berman? New York Post report that said that ownership wouldn't allow it. Uh, your own basically theorized that they were going to play Okafor, run up his value, and then trade him. There's a lot of reporting about Andy Miller, Porzingis' agent. And that they tried to prevent him from going there um, by denying workouts and medical information and interviews. There's a lot of theories on why. Here's, here's what I'll say. Um, and I can't say everything because I want to leave some stuff for the book. The a Andy Miller stuff is played almost no factor in it. Like almost no factor. That happens all the time. Bill Duffy, Julie Okafor's agent at the time, didn't give him medical, inf didn't give the Sixers medical information or an interview. Like agents will use that. Steph Curry is the one I always go back, back to. Because they tried to steer him, ironically, to the Knicks uh, and away from Golden State in his draft because he wanted to play in New York. So they did similar stuff in not working out, interviewing, giving medical information. That happens in every draft. And if you're confident enough in the prospect, you call the bluff. That, that had very little, if probably nothing to do with the Sixers passing on Porzingis. Now, everything else, you know, here, here's what I'll say. Was it a consideration? Was it were there extenuating circumstances on selecting a player that nobody thought was going to contribute early? And even if I go back to my write-up, I didn't think Porzingis was going to be an impact player from the jump. I thought he was going to take time. I mean, clearly, you can look at what happened. And again, trading the reigning rookie of the year in February 2015. Move that was unpopular both inside and outside the organization, which again blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. But, but, but it was. Then you find out the news that Jaleel, or that Joel Embiid had a setback with his foot. You find that out in, I think, early June 2015. And then, obviously, we saw what happened in November 2015, where once your, your, your rookie has some off-court issues and you struggle, they bring in a new, basically, lead decision-maker or somebody to alter the direction of the franchise. So it's not too difficult to read that there was maybe not quite as rope as there used to be. And you're faced with, with this... European prospect who nobody thinks is going to contribute right from the jump. Here's what I'll say. Do I think if they thought Kristaps Porzingis was going to be as good of a player right from the jump as he was, that they could have drafted him? Yes. I think they could have drafted him. So ultimately, I think it boils down to they made a scouting mistake, which happens, but it is a mistake that I think they have to own. And quite frankly, if you change just, and there's a bunch of different ways you can change this where what, what happened doesn't come to be. But if you just change that one mistake, I think uh, I think things go completely differently. So I don't I don't want to let them off the hook by saying Andy Miller forced their hand. I don't don't believe that to be true. I've always been told that wasn't true. I don't want to let them off the hook for a scouting mistake that I think they made. Yep. All right. Let's pause for one brief break to hear from Roman. If you were to guess on average how many days people in the U.S. have to wait to see a doctor, what would you say? A week, maybe? Actually, on average, people have to wait around 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities basically a month. 
If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com Sixers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com Sixers for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. And now back to the podcast. All right, let's go to some better stuff because I think we've we've probably beaten that one into the ground. Um, Hinky's 2014 draft was a goddamn masterpiece. Yeah, and I, I mean, that, that really, like, if you want to ask me what their greatest strength was, look, people were worried about Joel Embiid and whether or not, I mean, I think David Griffin has pretty much said, like, he was off the table for us because he wasn't going to play that year. People would drop Dario Saric because he wasn't going to come over right away. And he and they were like, well, screw that. We think they're the best prospects available. We think Joel Embiid can change the direction of the franchise. We're going we're, we're gonna to take him. And 2014 was really when you saw that. And it really did pay dividends. Like it was a, a, a philosophical advantage that they had at the time, which uh, maybe they lost in coming years, but they certainly had and used in the 2014 draft. Yeah. And, and doing what Cleveland or Milwaukee wouldn't and biting that bullet with Embiid, Sixers get a top 10 player. I don't care if Embiid retires from the league right now, 50 times better career than either of the guys drafted ahead of him. And uh, by the way, if we, uh, we want to talk about Lottery level, easy to uh, reverse engineer scouting mistakes. I mean, would the Bucks be sixty three and two if they had Embiid <laughs> yeah. and Giannis right yep. now? Yep. No, they they took Jabari Parker over him. Woo! Which it really does show, and like this is one of the and honestly, this is part of why. If you would ask me what the biggest mistake, well, like it's it's part of the reason. Even now, I can't completely kill. Colangelo for the Markel Fultz drafting. Now the trade, I think you can kill him for the drafting. I get like, I wrote, I recently wrote a what if on the athletic where it's like, well, what if they never make the trade? And basically the conclusion I came to is that the highest upside there, there's two real high upside plays in that 2017 draft. The first is if they would have somehow gotten Jason Tatum, which was never a possibility. I fully believe that Danny Ainge was walking out of that draft with Jason Tatum. And if he couldn't get assurances, that the trade he made to trade down would leave him with him, then he wouldn't have made the trade. And the other high, real high outcome, the one where you build a dynasty with the Sixers, is Markel Fultz just not going through whatever happened to make Markel Fultz forget how to shoot a basketball. Like, those were the two where you get a real... And look, there's, I, I think I, like if you look at it, like eight of the next 13 picks or whatever after Markel pro- would leave the Sixers in a better spot. So I don't want to say that selecting Markel didn't hurt. And I, I, some of those guys I really like. Uh, Jonathan Isaac, I really like and would make one hell of a front court defensively. But in terms of building a, like, it, it's real, it's, it's tough. It's real tough. And you can see that with the Markel. That's why I can't completely kill drafting Markel. But even these good organizations, like I said, Danny Ainge and Kelly Olenek, the Milwaukee Bucks, who found Giannis and then selected Jabari Parker over Joel Embiid. It is, the draft is really tough. And that's one of the reasons I, uh, I love it so much. Yeah. And then the shakedown of Orlando when he gets Dario. Probably the better player and gets the pick back. Just uh, just masterful. I think what made the Sixers successful in the years, It's you, you kind of touched it already. The, the core philosophy of zigging while others were uh, zagging, kind of just taking their medicine. I remember during that whole time people were saying Hinky was making moves to save his job. And I just, I couldn't mm, disagree more. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it was the exact opposite. And for a while there, they were content to get their brains beat in and make moves that set them up better for the future while he and the, the front office and the entire organization got raked through the coals. And when nobody else is doing that to that extent, you're going to be pretty good. And I mean, they got lucky in the lottery, specifically one time with Ben Simmons, but after after he left. But back to the Embiid pick, even with him breaking his foot and that lucky break there, 
it felt like they earned getting him because they were willing to be patient. Yeah. And uh, uh, look, uh, go back, find the old Liberty Ballers big boards, which I can encourage you to do because I still had Joel Embiid number one even after the foot injury. But there were a lot of people at what I considered a, a pretty good group in terms of we were, I mean, to use a, a Brett phrase at that time, we were star hunting. Like that was a whole point of the rebuild for us. We all pretty much backed that. There are a lot of people scared away from Joel Embiid at number three. That was a pretty terrifying foot injury, which let's be honest, in terms of luck, like he, outside of needing that second surgery, we haven't heard a peep of that now in a couple of years, which I mean, everybody knock on wood, but that was a real scary injury at the time. Like you, you read all the things about Yao and Bill Walton. And it was not a, Ilgauskas was sort of like seen as the success story of that injury. So there was a lot of risk in that draft pick. Um, or at least there's a lot of perceived risk of that draft pick. I always viewed the risk of that draft of passing on a all-time great like Embiid. But there's a lot of uncertainty with that with that injury and with that selection. And it was not a consensus that they should take him at number three. So I give certainly I think they get credit for that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think in general, a lot of uh, NBA executives at the time said something along the lines of it was a very good plan. It was... Very important for the owners to uh, to greenlight that because you know in our our spot for for mostly everybody else they wouldn't have been able to do that. Sam is smart, but the overwhelming odds are that he's not going to get a chance to see it through, and that uh, that ultimately ended up being the case. It felt like there were some fork in the road uh, road moments, like we already talked about with the Oak Four pick, where maybe they could have threaded the needle to. You know, being a good team and getting away from all of the uh, the bad publicity, but didn't happen. Yeah, as a, uh, I'm trying to think. There was one other thing. I say this all the time, but getting through an 82 game season when you're tanking sucks. Yes, and I think they knew this. I'm going to ask you again. You might you might again say, yeah, sure, they said it, but I think one of Sam or Brett said. <laughs> This isn't for the faint of heart, like in their yes. opening press conference. I think that yep. was Brett. Maybe, maybe it was Sam. I don't know. But man, if you actually care about basketball and the encore product, there were just way too many nights where they were getting their shit kicked in. And don't get me wrong. It was the right strategy. They always played hard. And when you did see some development or competitive basketball, it was fantastic. But it was plenty painful. And I was thinking about that this year when some people were not happy with the on-court product that this team was giving you. And to be fair, it was clunky and, and not a lot of fun. I'll take winning 60% of your games over that any day of the week, though. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was, I mean, really, like, when we started at The Athletic, it was like, oh, my God, I have to cover actual basketball games now. Because those games were uncoverable. Like, you just, I don't know how, and I, I get why, like, like more traditional beat writers where we got to focus so much on team building and player development and young kids and, and those kind of stories and trends. Like a day-to-day beat writer, I could get why you were not having fun covering those teams. They were not fun to watch. They were not fun to talk about. Trying to find a unique angle of every game must have been impossible. Uh, so yes, I will I will take these. Like the, the whole goal for people who were behind the rebuild was that you would have a better chance of getting to this point. Not because anybody actually enjoyed, like, I mean, look, you might enjoy some of the um, quirkiness of those teams, some of the cult heroes that developed out of those teams, but everybody more or less wants to watch winning basketball. It was a, a belief that you would eventually get where we were. Yeah. And uh, I know you always kill me for, uh, for lowering the number of people who... We have listening to this hundreds, podcast. Hundreds of people. Yeah. Okay. So forget about that for a sec. But in a similar sort of estimation, I forget where you were working at this point because it's kind of all a blur and there was a few places, whether it was for yourself or Philly Mag. But I remember you talking about a game observation story that yes. had like a hundred hits or page views or whatever. I think, and then I think the, that is overselling the page views, by the way. Yeah. And then the Embiid workout video you posted, it was like a full one. It was like a six minute one. Something it had something like a hundred thousand views. Yeah, or something. No, like, like I, I I wrote a game story, let it sit there for I think until the the morning, and it had like under a hundred page views, which is just what am I doing with my life? 
And then I added a, a, I think it was like a nine minute Embiid workout video. And that was during, I think his second rehab. And yeah, yeah it got like a hundred thousand within hours. Um, and that, that's what our life was. It was following Joel Embiid around, recording him, talking about him. Your, your quote, since I've been getting you shit the whole podcast, if he's ever healthy, this is over, uh, which turned out to be pretty close to true. It was just so obvious when you watched him, even in a setting like that, that he was something completely different than not only what the Sixers had, but really what big men in the NBA were doing. And uh, you, hoped, you, you hoped you would ever get to see that on a basketball court. And here we are. And that changes so much. You know, there's a frustration level now because you feel like you're on the verge of wasting that talent and that unique opportunity. And you feel like there could be more. And that's frustrating. But it is still like, that was a big win getting him. That was a real big win. Yeah. The uh, the pregame workouts were a big part of our early process era too. I remember tweeting a video out. Brett Brown used to work out with Nerlens Noel on his shooting before games. Yep. Like no NBA coach does that. And there were other times when Brett used to work out Joel a lot too. Yeah. Brett used to run a lot of pick and roll with Joel. Yeah. Yeah. With both of those guys, he would run pick and roll. And I'm talking like working up a lather. Like, I mean, obviously Brett Brown, former division one point guard. So, you know, still in pretty good shape runs every day, but you know, like pretending he was Tony Parker and dribbling through his legs and throwing behind the back passes about 45 minutes before he was about to coach an NBA basketball game. And uh, it's funny because I did the story earlier this season on what his pregame workouts are like. And I, uh, or sorry, his pregame process just in terms of like watching tape and listening to music and all these different things. And I was thinking like, man, it's uh, it's quite different than what it used to be because that was probably the most important thing he would do. That, yeah. Uh, that entire night. Um, and, and Brett is a, he's a creature of routine. Like he wants a cadence and a routine to his day. He wants things to be the same every day before the game. And uh, back then it was, fuck it. Let's go run some pick and roll. Yeah. The, uh, one of the other great moves too, and I, I, we'd be uh, messing up if we, uh, if we did not mention this, the, the Nick Stauskas trade, we're going to call it the Nick Stauskas trade, even though he wasn't the biggest part of it. Um, that was one where I look back at a lot of the stuff I wrote from that era and I cringe. And I, I think that's similar to a lot of writers. I actually look back to what I wrote the day after that trade happened. And because it was so obvious what a good trade that was, I actually like what I wrote. <laughs> uh, I think here, here's a part of what I had. Like some of Hinky's best trades, this move comes risk-free. It might never turn into a home run, but there's zero potential for a strikeout. Um, blah, 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 blah. In the same transaction, he also bet against the Sacramento Kings. Hinky did a good thing here. That one turned out okay. Yeah, and look, you you the way I always phrase it, they could have won 50 games that year and end up with the third pick in 2017. And that was a kind of... And look, that was just looking at the reality of their situation. Okay, we're not going to use this cap space for productive purposes. Let's go out and let's find a sucker. And like we were talking about with your own the other week or last week, he was like, well, GMs would be like, well, he keeps calling me up with these bullshit shitty offers. Well, because you have Vlade who will accept one if you try. Like you can't, you will not get someone to accept your bullshit offer if you don't ask. And they use their, again, it's another one where if they wanted to manage the perception, they would have used however much, I forget how much ended up absorbing in that trade contract wise. But they could have gone out there and signed a, you know, a veteran mid-level to come in there and give them 13 wins instead of 10. And some people would have been happy with that. But then you don't end up with the third pick in the draft. So, yeah, I think that was another one where they looked at their situation, figured out how they can use that their, to their advantage. And they, they did it well. They did it well. Yeah. The, uh, the other thing that stuck out, just kind of process memories, media days, the difference between them at that point and what we have now pretty different i I remember one time they did their exit interview day literally right after the last game in the locker room and a lot of people i think the more traditional writers were pissed off i was kind of lukewarm about it i mean and and it was kind of a bs move but as someone who has now sat through a five to six hour slog on zero sleep 
after driving back from Boston and Toronto yes. the last couple of years, maybe it actually was for the best. That was that was okay. Um, Can they lose a fucking playoff series in Philadelphia, by the way? Please, yeah. please. At least not, like you said, in Toronto when we have to drive back. That would be great. Lose in the country. So <laughs> I remember the next day after that Toronto game, by the way, I did a, a radio hit on Mike Missinelli's show and – my friend texted me. He's like, I, I didn't really think you uh, you had it in that one. Are you okay? And I was like, no, nah, man, I am running on fumes. So if I if I sounded coherent at all, that's a win. And if not, no big. Um, and then nowadays, like media day before the season, it's a circus. There's 10 people from ESPN. There's these other national and local outlets. You know, all the Sixers players go through the car wash. In 2015, 16, you, you remember yeah. this. This really isn't that long ago you and i go out to stockton it would be like me you d tom bob keith keith and that's it that's it like there were there were days where like maybe all that that contingent didn't show up and it would be like me you and tom and like almost nobody else and it was uh yeah it's a it's a different atmosphere around the team and i think all media day was instead of having a, a big podium and passing around mics and maybe getting one question in if you're lucky, we sat around like a lunch table. Yep. And did our media day interviews. And uh, I remember that was the season that they won 10 games, of course. Uh, who was it? There was one player who specifically talked about the playoffs. The playoffs became a story. I don't know if it was the player or it was like. Somebody was asking a question, just like, do you think you have a chance to make the playoffs? It kind of became a story. Spoiler alert, it was not the year to uh, <laughs> to make the playoffs. But uh, just in terms of the, the size of this thing, because, you know, I think there was a lot of interest in the, the team building aspect of the Sixers by then. And, you know, the draft and the rights to Ricky lottery parties were all in full force. But when the season came around yeah, and it yeah. was time to talk about the actual team those years, man, it was rough. And it was like you said, they had made all of these transactions that would pay off literally just like the next year. That's when all of these guys would get on the floor for, for all of these different reasons. Plus Ben Simmons, although he actually had to wait another year. So it was kind of the, the perfect storm for, for 10 wins when they had a lot in the bank, but it just wasn't, uh, yeah. able to be uh, used yet. Right. There were things to be written about the team in terms of what they were doing and the controversy surrounding. I did not need to talk to Hollis Thompson in order to write those articles. So yeah, those uh, those those media gatherings were interesting. Interesting. I think he was the best 31 in Sixers history, by the way. It's uh, <laughs> that's two, that's two of those bad boys. I am, I am terrible at remembering like random people's jersey numbers. I, I assume you had to do a lot of research for that. No, I just went on Basketball Reference. They have a yeah. page where they have all the numbers. So, yep. no, I would not have been able to do all that research. Did, would you have known Hollis off the top of your head? For some reason, I think the answer is yes, but I'm not generally that good. I don't know. He was here for a long time. Okay. Okay. Reggie Miller. I don't know. Yep. 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 All right. Let's pause for one more brief break. This time to hear from DoorDash. If you're like me, you've developed a number of go-to spots in your area to get your favorite food. Meals, locations, and people have become not only a part of your routine, but a part of your way of life. Now those restaurants are counting on you, and while their dining rooms may be closed, many are still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right now, right to your door. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, DoorDash is a convenient, safe way to bring you the food you love while still supporting the local businesses that are so near and dear to the hearts of our communities. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more and zero delivery fees for their first month when you download the DoorDash app and enter code SIXERS. That's $5 off your first order and zero delivery fees for a month when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code SIXERS. Don't forget, that's code SIXERS for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. And now back to the show. All right. In terms of off the court, you know, we talked about the biggest mistake of the process being Julie Loke for in terms of on-court move. What could they have done off the court to sort of buy themselves more time or convince more people or, or 
anything. What could they have done off the court to help themselves? Talk to the media on the record once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I don't think this mattered in terms of how they did their job, but I think when you're trying to pull off such an audacious rebuilding project, public perception is going to matter more than most uh, most jobs. And I think, you know, unfortunately, it seems like Sam knew that. The, uh, the anecdote Yaron had in his book about him telling Jason Richardson, everybody's going to hate me, even before uh, things got kicked off. But yeah, I think... I think that could have helped. And at the time, we were defending him. Like, yeah, he's not talking on the record, and I wish he would as a media member, but I'm not going to let that cloud how I'm judging um, how he's doing his job that actually matters, the basketball team. Of course, there was a moment I remember, I think it was after the Michael Carter-Williams trade. I, uh, you know, the... The next day, Sam had to speak because you had, I guess you had to speak after making a big trade or, or whatever, well, maybe. Also, I think that was the day after the trade deadline. Yeah. So so maybe that was just the one time he would speak. Like, he would talk around the draft a couple times, too. But yep. uh, I remember I tweeted something like, Howard Eskins looking at himself in the mirror. He's uh, he's playing Lose Yourself by Eminem. This is his time to yell at Hinky. He was loving it. and He wasn't there. He wasn't there, and uh, I think Howard pointed out that Hinky knew that he was at Philly spring training, which is why he uh, he was having this press conference instead of you know it being the trade deadline or whatever. Right. But uh, that was uh, that was the entertainment we had at that time because we weren't really talking about the actual basketball team. No, but no, yeah, we I, I think I think he needed to be a little more front facing with the media. You, you talk about it all the time how. He was more helpful than most GMs kind of off the record in terms of, you know, he wouldn't give you like state secrets on the team, but he he would have a discussion with you. I wouldn't even say helpful. I'd say more like accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, off the record. But yeah, I think the, the PR part of it was, you know, it was part of the reason that, uh, that all the animosity built up against him. And I, I don't know you know, how he would have controlled it completely when the team was so bad and and how they were doing it. But I I think they could have made more of an effort. Yeah, there was, and look, we we were in a little bit of an interesting spot because when Sam was hired, I think I was getting like individual game passes, but I was more like, like I was just writing about basketball in my spare time. Our support came because we had been arguing for a couple of years at that point that they essentially need to do something similar to what they ended up doing and, and rebuilding through the draft. Basically, our support was we were arguing well before we were credentialed media members, well before Sam Hankey got here, quite frankly, before I knew who Sam Hankey was on a real level, that they needed to rebuild through the draft and that sticking in the middle of the way they were was pointless. So they hired Hankey. He came in. I remember at, I was at his opening press conference and I directly asked him about prioritizing superstar players. And he you know, said, history is pretty clear. They matter a lot in the current NBA. And hearing him say that and watching the Drew Holiday trade, it was like, oh my God, he's actually going to do what we've been arguing about for a long time. So our support for that didn't come from any kind of like access. It's just, that's a strategy we had been arguing about and arguing for, for quite some time. But I agree with you. Like there was a public relations aspect to this that they pretty much ignored and not only ignored, but they pretty much like, they felt like disdain that it even had to be a part of the equation. And Yaron talked about it. He's like, well, if, if we get, if what we do works, it won't matter how much I try to sell my plan. It won't matter how we try to dress this up. And he's right. Like if Joel Embiid is healthy and playing his second year, we're not having any of these conversations. If they make the right selection with Okafor and the Okafor Porzingis draft, we're not having these conversations. You don't need to dress that up. It just works. If they get the number one pick and Ben Simmons and they get whatever happens where they have just another year and Ben Simmons comes in and doesn't break his foot, we're not having these conversations. Like it, what, Their plan could have spoken for itself. Yeah, and, and as it turned out, I would argue those were not terrible things because Embiid breaking his foot the second time oh, you don't have opened ben up without getting Ben yep. Simmons. So, so in the long run, it actually worked out. But 
but there is there's there's a world and it's the one that came out to be where things don't work out at least in the timeline you have before everything went sideways could they have changed the fact that they were 130 i don't know probably not like that probably gets you changed no matter <laughs> how much you talk or how much Jaleel Okafor is on TMZ or not but it couldn't have hurt and whether that is you know having someone in your front office who was a player and who could be sort of semi-public part of your front office. Could that have helped? Probably a little bit. Could that be leaking transactions? And look, I get it. If you don't want to like leak major stuff to the media and risk that getting out, I get it. If you want to keep your inner circle really tight, because I mean, look, one of the, the things that's come up recently, like the Sixers lost out on Tracy McGrady because Stephen A. Smith broke the news of the trade. Then Toronto backed out of it. So, like, losing bits of information can have real impact. Like, the Sixers knew that the Magic wanted Peyton because of media reports about it. Like, there's, it's not like he was paranoid. Like, this is stuff that has played out. So, I get that. But, like, little stuff. Like, if you're going to cut a player, like, leak it to the media, you know? Like, throw them something so that the people who are almost quite literally writing the narrative about your career have something to go off of. Like, build those relationships. And again, I actually think, like, a lot of people will give Hinky grief, like, thinking he's, like, a shut-in who doesn't have interpersonal skills. Like, he can form those relationships. I think he need to make a little bit more of an effort to do so. And a little bit more of an effort to, you know, change the perception of his group and him and what's going on. Uh, and I think, I think that was a real misstep. I think that was a real misstep. Yeah. Now, all that said, I mean, I think... You know, as we kind of wrap this thing up, literally the best thing this franchise has done, I don't know, 20 years? Hiring him and greenlighting that plan. And look, here's, and look, I think Josh Harris deserves a lot of criticism for some things and how they have gone down, including recent events with the the pay cut. And good on them for, you know, we haven't even really talked about this, but good on them for all of the donations they have made since then. Yeah, they've they've done a lot better recently, for sure. A lot better, yep. And good on Joel Embiid, by the way, for the donations and the research that he has did uh, for the antibody testing for doctors. But I do think they deserve credit for greenlighting it at the beginning. You know, I think obviously you would hope that of all people, Josh Harris would recognize where they are in the J curve and not panic at the lowest point and realize that just because they are at the lowest point, there was an upswing coming. And he didn't recognize that. And for whatever reason, he didn't have the foresight to see where it was going. And look, I get a lot of these these outcomes were cloudy at the time. Like Joel Embiid was uncertain. Dario Saric was uncertain, even though we knew he had a two-year contract before he had an out. But there was a lot of uncertainty. But I do think he deserves some credit for greenlighting it, some credit for s- sticking it through for two and a half years before blinking, because not all owners would have done that. And we can get cynical here and say, well, yeah, but they were profitable because of the strategy, and they were for most of the years. But, uh, you know, he, 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 he did authorize it. So good on him for that step at the very least. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, no, I mean, I think. I think we hit most of it. Yeah. Yeah. And look, the other thing was, I do think they probably could have gotten more veterans. Like, I think one of the things that was beneficial was um, Luke Bamute for Joe during his rookie season. And I forget exactly when Luke was around the team. He was 14, only here for one year. For, so that was a year where Joel was out. But I think just having him around the team for that was, was good. I think Luke was a good veteran to have not only around Joe, but around the whole team and maybe prioritizing a couple more. And look, those guys are tough to find because you have to get guys who are okay in that mentorship role and who aren't going to lose their minds by the losing. And a lot of times the kind of, mentors you would want to teach your young kids also have that competitive drive where they're not going to be okay in a situation that they're in and could end up becoming a problem. So it's not easy to find that, but I think a little more of a priority in terms of that was like, if you use one or two roster spots on Luke Bamute's, you can still go through the Covington-esque cycle of going through players to try to find a diamond in the rough. Like it doesn't have to be quite as cut or dry either or as it maybe was. And I think that I think that could have helped it a little bit. And look, is that going to change a team? No. Like, it's marginal, the impact it would make. 
But I think they probably had a little bit of a blunder on that too. Cool. All right. So tank to the top, uh, go buy it, go check it out, buy your own book. And, um, Here's what I'll say, because I got a lot of questions about my book, about whether your own book coming out changes what I'm doing or whether, you know, I really endorse your own book when I'm writing my own competing book. Um, and I'm not I'm not going to say anything here that I haven't told your own directly many times over in the, the past year and a half. You know, basically, I signed a book deal with the publisher back in spring 2018, uh, which is right around the time that I really got to know your own on a more personal level um, because he, he started coming around the team. And I knew when I signed the book deal that there were going to wind up being a few different books on the process. And I wasn't too interested in rush rushing to be the first to market with one. Um, well, eventually my publisher caught wind of another book being worked on. And we got on a call in the publisher's stance. You know, was that being the first to market with the book will make it easier to sell? And look, if you're a publisher or a literary agent, maybe skip the rest of the podcast if you can for my own benefit. You know, but I said back to my publisher, I'm like, yeah, I agree. I think it will make it easier to sell. But I also don't think the first book that comes out on this topic will be the full story of the rebuild or the best book that I personally can write. You know, I think there are aspects of this story that will be easier to flesh out and easier to dig up the farther out we get away from it. You know, my stance is mostly that, you know, I'm, I'm playing with house money with my career that I sort of backed into this thing almost by accident. You know, I, I've been open about this a lot. I didn't go to school for journalism. I didn't ever really dream about being a, a writer. I was a, a computer engineer. I should be writing Python code right now, not a book. You know, but I was here for all of this. I was around the team during this incredibly interesting part of their history. And this is maybe the one subject I am qualified to write a book about. Uh, frankly, I didn't care how many copies of the book I sold. I cared much more about whether I was proud of the final product. So my publisher and I had to sit down and we talked about what the next steps would be and the approach we wanted to take. And I, I basically told them that I thought the best course of action was for me to send my advance back um, and we go our separate ways. Not because they necessarily did anything wrong, but because our, our goals weren't 100% aligned. And I, I did. I sent my advance back and we canceled the contract. And, you know, since then, I've had a couple of other publishers reach out and want to sign me to a deal. And I've pushed back because I didn't want to put any kind of timeline on it, you know, in a in a in a weird way, I think my greatest strength in writing a quality book is that I'm not worried about selling that book. And I'm willing to wait long enough that it's probably marketing suicide, but I think that will help me get the full story and, and get the story that needs to be told. So getting back to your own book, you know, when he told me the timeline he was working under, I, I pretty much flat out told him that I thought he was going to struggle with that timeline. And I told him that not only, you know, not out of any competing writer rivalry, but because that was the argument I had quite literally just made to my publisher. You know, that is the belief I am betting my own book on. So when I, I got a copy of your own book and I read it, you know, I was quite honestly, I was, I was very impressed. You know, he got a lot more detail than I thought he would given the timeline he was working under. If you are a fan of this podcast and you have just listened to 55 minutes about a team that won, you know, what a combined 45 games over a three year period, something like that. If you're still listening to us now, then you will very much enjoy your own book. I thought he did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. I think he's a really good reporter. I think he did a really good job with what he was given with. And I, th I think the book, not only like, I'm not, I'm not grading it on a curve. Like I think it's a really interesting book. Um, and no matter how locked in you were to following the team and following the rebuild you were, you know, you will learn a lot of new information. You will gain context about events you already knew about. You will learn about events you didn't know existed you know i have zero doubt really none at all that if you're listening to this podcast you'll be happy that you bought your own book i don't think anybody will feel like they wasted their time or their money and that recommendation is coming from someone who is as close to the situation as you can be so what does that really mean about my book it, it doesn't really change much to be honest you know like i said I, I i i knew there were going to be other books and i knew that i wasn't going to be the first beyond that i knew that i didn't even really want to be the first so nothing that's really happened here has has changed my approach so my job now is to use the extra time I have to uncover new information that your own didn't, to use the access I had and the relationships I've formed, and then the extra time given to me to flesh out more of the story, to use my proximity to the situation. You know, I mean, all those press conferences your own talked about, I was at all of them, with one exception, the one exception being the, the, the one where Brian Clangelo had to give an impromptu press conference about Joel Embiid's meniscus tear, which... 
in a weird twist is, is a story that I broke. Um, but Philly Mag had just closed down and we hadn't gotten the credentials squared away for an independent blogger. So I wasn't actually at that one, even though I broke the news. Um, but I mean, all those press conferences that you're going to talk about, I was at all of them right from, right from the very beginning, right from, from, you know, the Andrew Bynum press conference to Doug Collins quitting to Sam Hankey hiring to Brett Brown's introductory press conference. I was at, I was at every one of those and I should be able to use having been there to add additional context. So if I can use all of those advantages, the extra time I have, the relationships I've formed, the benefit of having been there through the whole thing to write a more fleshed out version of the book, then I will release, release the book when it's done and not worry about how many copies it sold or if you don't want to read it because it's the second or third or fourth book about the process. I'm not really worried about that at all. And I'll worry about marketing that when I get to that. If I get to the point where I feel confident in the book and my biggest concern is marketing it, then it's not really too big of a concern at all. And if the, at the end of the day, I haven't gotten enough new information to make it worth your time, then I won't release it. Like I said, this is a, a this is, I don't call it a life's work because I'm a young person. I still have a lot of time ahead of me, hopefully, knock on wood. But I, I you know, this is something where I feel very fortunate having been here and I want to make sure I do that justice. Um, it's, it's really more of a internal battle I have than a marketing one. Um, like I said, I think, I think your own did a fantastic job. I think all of you listening to this podcast will enjoy it. And now it's, it's on me to top it. And, and that's a bet I made a long time ago when I canceled my book deal. And it's, it's still true. And I want to be perfectly clear. My book isn't anywhere near complete. Don't hold out on buying your own book because you think mine might be right around the corner. That's not the case. I am George R. Martining the hell out of this book. Uh, so go buy your own book. He's good people. You wrote a damn good book and, and you will enjoy that. All right. So I think I've yammered on here enough. Um, we will come up with something new for next week's show because quite frankly, nothing we expect, nothing will change between now and then. So we will have to get creative. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on and we will talk to you soon. And again, go buy your own book. See you, man.